Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Mary Evelyn Tucker, research scholar and senior lecturer in religion and the environment at Yale Divinity School, speaking about the intersection of faith and the environment on April 20th, 2006, at a joint meeting of the Yale Divinity School Board of Advisors and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies Leadership Council. Thank you, Dean Speth and Dean Attridge, and thank you for coming this afternoon. I clearly am not Wangari, and no one can replace Wangari, whom we love dearly.、Um, but I do want to say that I think this is a conversation that continues from an extraordinary conference that Gus Beth and his staff put on at Aspen. Some of you were there, I believe, in October on climate change, and this、uh, quite remarkable report has come out of it called "Americans and Climate Change: Closing the Gap Between Science and Action." And I'm going to pick up that notion of closing the gap between science and action, and suggest this is where religion and ecology fits in certain ways.、Um, it might not be a perfect fit, but I think it's an area that、um, moves into this notion of ethics and values, which we're examining in these few days together.、Um, And especially because this is a newly emerging field、um, of religion and ecology, I think there's two areas that religion and ecology speaks、um, to this this gap. And one is that the environmental crisis is a moral crisis,、um, and that we need a new ethics to address this crisis. We could say, and Thomas Berry, one of my teachers, has said, we have ethics for. Homicide and suicide, and in the 20th century, learned ethics for genocide. But we do not yet have ethics for biocide or geocide, and that is the task at hand—a huge task to extend our ethical concern to people at a distance, to next generations, to species and ecosystems. The other area that religion and ecology addresses. Is that the environmental crisis is a spiritual crisis, and by that I mean that what I think is at hand is a clear call for hope, because hope is what will generate the changes that are needed for the future. And in particular, I would suggest hope is the hand to the next generation, because by and large, that is what they are looking for. And I mean by that a hope that means empowerment, that means they are partnering with the work that needs to be done, and that's what's so exciting about what the Divinity School and Forestry School are thinking about in this new partnership, because I think more than anything we need this sense of a new and enlarged ethics, but we also need this sense that another world is possible. Another world is possible for our children, their children, and future generations of all species, of all species. So, in that sense, then,、um, 
both Wangari and William Sloan Coffin need to be brought into the room because I think they are respected precisely because they brought that moral force and that spiritual presence to bear on these key issues that Gus has named for us. Certainly Wangari and the environment and this magnificent tree planting project, and she participated in our final conferences as well in New York at the Natural History Museum, and that determination against all odds is certainly what we value in someone like Wangari. And by the same token, I too was deeply influenced by William Sloan Coffin. And when my friend said, I'm going to be at Riverside Church tomorrow while you're talking here at Yale, I think um, not only civil rights, but the war in Vietnam. And I want to begin sort of my narrative of how I got into this field by saying I was in Japan for two years in 1973-74, and at the end of that trip, I went to, to, throughout Asia um, and stopped in Vietnam in November of 74, just a few months before Vietnam fell. And it was an arresting experience, clearly, to fly over the land and see the effect of Agent Orange, to stop at an orphanage where a friend was working, taking care of children who were maimed or, or left orphaned from the war. A hugely disturbing experience. And from there, I flew to Singapore. And to see Singapore and the contrast of this almost hyper-developed society and the supermarkets with rows on rows of luxury products or dog food even or things like that. And I became deeply concerned, as we all are, I think, by the inequities of our world, the immense inequities that have developed between so-called North and South, the developed and developing countries, around which the UN conference on the Earth Summit in Rio began to think, how can we talk about economic development and environmental sustainability? And that was the second issue that became so clear to me as I was traveling through Asia over these last 30 years Um, and watching the environment deteriorate right before our eyes in three decades. I don't think humans have ever affected the planet um, in this particular way, this whole post-war period. But cities in Asia, such as Thailand, and uh, even Delhi or Jakarta, I'm sure many of you have been there, these were cities that were immensely beautiful and livable in the early 70s. And now, as you know, although they're struggling, to live there means your health is at risk, your children's health, the asthma and so on, the pollution from cars and overdevelopment, the clogged nature of these cities is um, disturbing. Although some, there is also good news, Delhi is cleaning up um, its emissions and so on. But these were issues that had a huge effect on me as a young person in the, in the 20s, in my 20s. Um, these inequities and the environmental degradation that I began to see. And then the third factor was, as I lived in Japan, uh, I began to wonder what it was that motivated people to live and to create a society that was so different from ours. And 
What is fascinating to me, I think, is that most of us in the early 70s who were in Japan were very little prepared. There was very little in Asian studies in the universities here. All my teachers at uh, Columbia and, and at Harvard actually came out of the war, the Second World War. They were trained in the Army and Navy language schools and began to set up Asian studies. But still, we were not really prepared to understand how these societies worked and what motivated them. And so I began to study the religions and I became deeply interested, as many were in that period, in Buddhism and Zen Buddhism and the, the gardens of Kyoto absolutely fascinated me. And there were very few foreigners uh, in Japan in this period and it was very easy to travel and quite an amazing, it was almost like living at the end of the Meiji era. It was a 19th century feeling, even in the early 70s. Um, much of that is gone, except when you sneak into some of these beautiful gardens and can feel the imprint of history that is in Kyoto, one of the most ancient capitals in the world, a thousand-year-old capital. Even our European cities look young by comparison. And so I was trying to figure, what is this imprint of history and culture and values? And I also studied Shinto and was fascinated with their aesthetic and with a sense of purification and renewal. And between the Buddhists um, trying to deal with impermanence and change and suffering and the Shinto sense of the natural world and living in the, the harmony of the natural world, the kami, the, the spirits in nature, I became more and more intrigued with not only did how societies work, but what were views of nature that were developed as a result of these religious traditions. And when I came back um, to study at Columbia uh, University, I really found what was behind the door of Japan, this kind of invisible, you know, the oriental scrutiny that people talk about. And I began to realize, thanks to some amazing teachers, uh, William Theodore DeBerry at Columbia, who's really been a founder of Asian studies, and Thomas Berry, um, who the, the two of them were creating this sense of why these traditions were not just historical fossils from the past, but living, moving, breathing presences, affecting life, people, attitudes, and values. And in that sense, it was Confucianism that became the fascinating discovery for me of motivations that the social glue of Japan and much of East Asia, including, of course, Korea, China itself, Hong Kong, Singapore, and even Vietnam, had been majorly influenced by Confucianism. In fact, if you take just numbers, um, probably we could say more people in human history have been influenced by Confucianism than almost any other tradition. Now, why did Confucianism capture me? Because it has a social ethics of relationality. It has this sense not of hyper-individualism, which is valuable in our inheritance from the Enlightenment, but it has a sense of the relationship of humans to one another and the sense of responsibilities and duties, not only rights. It's a reversal of that Enlightenment legacy of individualism and rights. And the second reason why it had an immense appeal was it had an educational philosophy. It had this sense that education wasn't just about getting a job, but it was about the moral cultivation of the individual. The depth of the human needed to be brought out in education, and not just for the self, but for the society as a whole. 
the whole claim of Confucianism is for the individual to contribute back to the society. And that led to the political philosophy. And the political philosophy highlights the common good, the common good for all generations. This is why ancestry and future generations and so on in, in these Chinese influenced societies is so important. So a political philosophy that had the common good in mind and in fact had held together, although imperfectly at times like all systems, had held together this immense civilization, I felt had something to teach us. Um, and the final thing that intrigued me was this sense of the earth as the container of all of our reciprocities, of all of that yearning to belong, to feel connected, to feel emplaced, empowered within the life systems of the planet. And Confucianism holds that at its heart, that this is a vibrant, life-giving system of which we are in reciprocal and dynamic relationship over time. And when I found this passage in a Japanese 17th century Confucian thinker that said, we take filial piety, one of the great virtues of the Confucian tradition, how we treat our parents, how we treat those who've gone before us, we take that virtue of filial piety and we extend it to the great parents of us all, which is heaven and earth the cosmos and earth itself. And so this notion that pervaded this Confucian tradition was that the responsibilities not only to parents but to care for the life systems was central to civilization and culture and the continuity of civilization. So this absolutely fascinated me, um, that this was built into a system of not only responsibility to the human order, but to the larger ecological order, um, and even to the cosmic order. Now, how then, amidst these experiences in Japan, watching the devastation of the environment, clearly seeing the effect of climate change in many parts of Asia, um, and seeing the cities, as I mentioned, that were beautiful, um, and then seeing books emerge like Elizabeth Economy's new book called the, the River Runs Black about what's happening in China. And we can say more about the fact that the president of China will be here tomorrow. Why development and environment are at the heart of the issues that China is facing and we are all facing because a billion people are standing up and saying, we want our refrigerators and cars and cell phones, etc. And what does that mean for the planet? China and India will change the face of the planet as much as climate change. And in fact, of course, are deeply uh, related. Now, this religion, almost, we could call it, this religion of economic growth and development that is driving the rest of the world, like China and India, other parts of Asia, Africa, Latin America, that this equals progress, that this equals the rise of the human, um, is something that we rarely question, 
even though we're talking, of course, about reconfiguring it in sustainable development and so on. But some of the deep root causes of this, I would suggest, are still unexamined. In other words, the unexamined assumptions of what is progress um, need to be looked at. And why? Because the unintended consequences are now in our midst. The unintended consequences that the, the drive for growth will destroy forests, land, soil, water, the ecosystems of the planet. As the Millennium Assessment Report of, more, of last year says, over 60% of the ecosystems of the planet are deeply endangered. What does this mean? And what does it mean for a species who may make themselves endangered in the process if we take away this base nest, this home, these life systems? So what is our response as we begin to put together these, these various factors? Economic inequity, the need for economic growth and development, but the unassumed assumptions of that and the unintended consequences of environmental degradation and climate change and species extinction on a massive scale. Now, I'm giving you what is not new news to you. I'm just putting it in maybe slightly different form and giving my narrative of coming to why then my husband and I felt what is it that we could contribute to this issue. We're not scientists, we're not economists, we're not policy people. We have been given the benefit of studying these great traditions, of being able to travel in many, many parts of the world and see how these traditions are functioning, and to suggest that perhaps forms of modernization and development might be reconfigured to bring tradition and modernity together um, in a new ethics and in a new form of spiritual vision for our planet. Because clearly we are moving to form a planetary civilization. And that is the exciting invitation, I think, of religion and ecology for the next generation, that they are participating through this newly emerging field in a varied, multi-form, culturally-based, new ethical sensibility of our common future is the common ground of the earth itself. And that is a goal that the next generation wants to participate in, wants to feel empowered, and, and feel that they can make a difference. And so when we started these conferences at, at Harvard, it was with great trepidation and without any really clear uh, footsteps forward and with almost no funding, um, which is an interesting story in itself, because people from Asia flew from there on their own expense because they could see what was happening. This was just 10 years ago, but they could anticipate that their cultural roots, their religious values were being eroded with this rapid and relentless modernization. So what we did was we invited people into this conversation, first Buddhism and then Confucianism, and then it began to explode into the other world religions way beyond uh, what we would have imagined. And we invited area specialists, people who've been working for years in these fields and working on specialized texts of uh, Hindu medieval theology and so on. And we drew them into a conversation to say, you've studied these traditions, 
what is it that they could offer for our present period, knowing there's a difference between history and modern problems, between a traditional past and newly configuring environmental issues. But nonetheless, many, many of these scholars in conjunction with environmentalists and grassroots activists who came to these Harvard conferences got deeply renewed and excited by the kinds of things that they had studied and saw the possibility for a creation of new forms. As Gus said, this sense of the emerging alliance of religion and ecology means the religions themselves are creating new forms um, as they're responding to these problems. So recognizing this, this gap between tradition and modernity and certainly between theory and praxis, nonetheless, we went rather boldly and uh, perhaps naively forward with these conferences and then with this, this book project, um, which again was born of immense generosity and tremendous concern. And this is the best of the scholarly community, especially when it can connect, as, as Gus has helped people to do here, to the policy issues, to the real world issues. And it, that's where I think this field of religion and ecology um, can make a contribution. We set up a website with the assumption that religions are clearly necessary but not sufficient, and that they need to be in conversation with the science community, with the policy community, with the economics community. And we put materials up on this website so that those coming through religious studies or ministries um, or seminaries could get a sense of the conversation that's been going on for quite a few decades in these worlds of UNDP, where Gus worked, or the World Resources Institute, or Nature Conservancy, where some of you have worked, or Trust for Public Land. These conversations have been going on a long, long time. And the religious community, in certain ways, um, is late, but has a great deal to offer. A great deal to offer. And that's the excitement of this newly emerging alliance. Now, let me say um, that I want to touch on just a few of the problems and the promise of religion. And I'll, I'll conclude with a sense of, of what are some of the, the values and attitudes that emerge from this project um, at Harvard, and what are some of the fascinating case studies that are moving forward around the world that are showing this alliance of religious ideas and values and environmental praxis. And in fact, Wangari herself represents precisely this conjunction of her own traditional African roots and her Christian um, heritage. And she brings these together in this sense of tree planting is for the life of future generations and the well-being of the human community. Um, so let me suggest then that religions are certainly prophetic and transforming institutions, but they are also conservative and constraining. So we see the possibility and the problems here. And when we say the problems, as I've mentioned, they have in certain ways come late. They need then to join the conversation. They need to have humility and understand what are the concerns, uh, just as this climate change conference had this multi-sectoral um, interdisciplinary conversation, uh, which is exactly where I think we need to go. To say that religions have their dark side is obvious in the world that we live in today, whether it's intolerance or dogmatism or the sense this is the only way to go. And mind you, 
um, it is worth bearing in mind, not that the Asian religions are by any mean perfect and so on, but it is the Western religions that have exclusive claims to truth. The Asian religions are much easier to mingle with and have syncretism between these two traditions. Having said that, the contributions of the Western religions are emerging in fascinating and vibrant ways. And so this notion that Christianity is part of the problem and needs to be dismissed is, I think, deeply misguided. And that came out of Lynn White's article in 1967 in Science, one of the most read articles ever, the historic roots of our ecologic crisis, where it said that the Jewish and Christian tradition are responsible for our environmental crisis. And that's something we can talk about um, later. But my, my point here is that all of the traditions have these problematic sides, that they certainly can be dogmatic, they certainly can be intolerant. In addition, and this applies to some Asian religions, but there is in many of the world's religions a sense of otherworldliness, of transcending this world, of getting to a heavenly, a paradisal world, or that personal salvation is the way to go. So that is another um, of the problematic side here that I want to note. And, in fact, um, we may say that, again, many of the world's religions have more of a human-centered ethics and what we would call an anthropocentric ethics as opposed to an ethics of biocentric ethics or ecocentered ethics. And that's why, as I said earlier, this move to respond to biocide or geocide with an ethical, moral, and spiritual sensibility is, I think, one of the greatest challenges that we as humans uh, face right now. Now, the promise side, the positive side, along with um, our um, recognition of the, the problematic side, religions have large numbers of people. There's the Muslim world that claims a billion people, the Christian world, something along those lines as well. Um, these are huge institutional resources, then, for affecting transformation, for creating the foundations of a new and sustainable planetary civilization. The world's religions have always been about sustaining, creating, maintaining, guiding, and inspiring civilization. And that's what they need to be drawn into at this time as well. This is a civilizational task. And that's why the religions will make a difference. Now, religions also have, in their best moments, the power of moral persuasion, the sense of ethical authority in their best forms. Um, we saw that in certain ways in some of the um, immigration issues when some of the churches said these people, of course they need water, of course they need care, and so on. Um, the, the sense that the power of texts and traditions to inform human life and behavior, but also transform it in new directions, is something that the religions offer. And the foundation of what I would, would offer for our reflection is that religions create worldviews for people that deeply influence their ethical behaviors, their values. And that's where this study that we were offering from these Harvard conferences um, was an examination of these worldviews, especially in attitudes towards nature. How was nature valued? Um, 
And what we can say then is despite this great variety in the world's religions and the cultural differences of Christianity in Europe and in Africa, the largest growing areas of Christianity are in Africa and South America, and these are going to be very different forms of Christianity. So the variety of the traditions historically over time and culturally and geographically over space need to be kept in mind. But what we did discern in this three-year project and, and beyond of some certain common values um, that we can point to um, for an, a new environmental ethics. And these would be, and I love that William Sloan Coffin said we need to move from respect to reverence, because the very first one that we identified is this sense that religions hold a reverence for the earth, a reverence for creation, as it's called, of course, in the Western traditions. Um, and that secondly, if you would take this as a, a comprehensive assumption, a reverence for life and life systems. The second would be then a respect for species, for ecosystems, for that which makes up the particular forms of this huge created order. Um, so that respect for species, respect for ecosystems and water would lead to the third point, and that is restraint in use, a sense of self-restraint. And certainly with this rapid consumption exploding all over the world, we were in Dubai last year and the malls are not to be believed, five inches of rain a year building four and five star and seven star hotels, building under an underwater hotel, building a ski jump in an area that is basically a, de a desert, consumption has exploded. And so what is it that this sense of self-restraint that creates culture, that creates society, civilizational values? Um, and then fourthly, this notion of redistribution of wealth this tremendous problem of inequities that are facing our world, certainly in our own societies, but around the world as well. And we know that democracies cannot be sustained with such inequities and with this tremendous sense of people being left out of a globalizing system. And so religions have that ability to offer eco-justice, social justice, and a sense of redistribution um, of wealth. And finally, this sense of responsibility for creation, a responsibility that means um, as we hand on creation, as it's uh, referred to in the Western traditions, for present and for future generations, it needs to be cared for. And this was clearly at the basis of sustainability in its early definitions in our common future, the Brundtland Report, and I'm sure in much of the work that Gus was involved in at UNDP, this sense of responsibility for present and future generations is huge. And I would suggest again that no human group has been called as we are being called to such a massive sense of responsibility for future generations. This is what Thomas Berry refers to as the great work of our time. How are we going to create not only a multi-form planetary civilization, but a sustainable future 
for all generations. This is a historic moment. Now, let me say, then, having outlined some of these values for environmental behavior and attitudes, I want to just also share with you a few of the remarkable stories that are happening around the globe. Um, and we're doing a film on, on many of these that are happening in the U.S., and I hope we'll be able to do some from abroad as well, because they're absolutely inspirational. These are often grassroots people working with little funding and no recognition, and we want to bring them into a networking at a conference and so on for this sense of mutual empowerment of what they are doing to save land, river areas, restoration, reforestation, all kinds of extraordinary projects that bring together environmental concerns and religious values. Now, in Christianity... I'm sure we'll get into conversations over the next day of the evangelical community that has been working on climate change. And Richard Sizek, who was at the Aspen Conference, is clearly one of these leaders who believes climate change will affect the poor um, more than anyone else. And, of course, he's absolutely right. But Mike McElroy, the head of the environment program at, at Harvard, made this same case as a scientist saying we've got to take more responsibility as the oceans rise um, and so on. And I was in Indonesia last summer, a country of 18,000 islands, and it is frightening. Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, Indonesia, is a case study. I'll return to that in a few minutes. But after every talk that I gave, the first question is, why won't the U.S. sign the Kyoto Protocol? I mean, these were intellectuals, these were environmentalists, and where is this sense of bonding across communities for a sustainable future? Um, the yearning for that feeling of, uh, of a common future, um, especially around something like climate change um, in areas like Indonesia were, was very, very striking. The evangelicals have signed this statement um, about saying, we have to save the, the environment, and we need to work against the, uh, the problematic efforts of many corporations and others with greenhouse gas emissions, um, et cetera. It's an extremely promising uh, movement. But I want to also point to two other areas that have been almost invisible but equally important. One is in Zimbabwe, and it's an effort um, of tree planting as well. And what's remarkable about this is that it's the Dutch Reformed churches, some of the more conservative of the Christian churches, are working with the Shona people in Africa, the indigenous Shona tribes, and they are doing tree planting. They have created, a, through the seminary, a theology of tree planting that speaks about the, the Eucharist of the tree a thanksgiving for what the tree gives to hold soil and water and fruits for the community. It's a remarkable project. Um, Enos Daniel is the one who created it and led it for many, many years, and millions of trees have been planted there to combat what happened in the Civil War in Zimbabwe. The other um, is the Greek Orthodox Patriarch Bartholomew. Now, some of you are shaking your heads. Apart from the Dalai Lama, I would suggest that our most visible international religious leader on this issue is the Greek Orthodox Patriarch from Istanbul, Bartholomew. 
Now again, if we realize the Christian churches ranging from Catholicism to Protestantism to Orthodoxy, Orthodoxy tends to be one of the more conservative branches of Christianity. But it was in 1997 at a conference in Santa Barbara that the patriarch said, what we are doing to the environment is ecological sin. These are crimes against creation. And his papers, his addresses have now been collected um, in a volume which is absolutely magnificent and quite stirring. But what he's done is not only make statements, he has convened these symposiums on water issues, on the Mediterranean, on the Black Sea, on the Baltic, on the Aegean. Um, we have gone on some of these um, symposiums where he brings scientists and environmentalists and media people and UN and EU uh, ministers of the environment. And one of the most striking moments was two summers ago when the theologian who's been an inspiration for the Orthodox um, community said, this is not just a matter of stewardship, of how we humans care for creation. It is that, but it is more. He said, this is a fundamental change in who we are as humans. It's on that large scale. This was a breakthrough moment. The word he used was ontology. It's about the beingness of humans. Um, it's that kind of change that we are called to make. Um, these symposiums have been absolutely remarkable. Now, I'll return to Islam as well. And what I'm trying to emphasize here is things below the radar screen, things coming from communities that, that we might not have expected, um, like the evangelicals or like the orthodox. And in the Islamic world, there have been two extraordinary conferences in Iran, one in June of 2001 and one last year in May of 2005. And John and I went to both of these conferences wore the, uh, the, the covering um, in very, very hot weather. But the government of Iran sponsored these conferences with the United Nations Environment Program. And Klaus Topfer, the director, came. The international community reached out to this, this government. The constitution of the Islamic Republic of Iran has a platform which says no damage to the environment that would affect adversely the environment or future generations is permissible. And it calls upon Islamic principles of, uh, of stewardship, in this case, of care for creation for protection of the environment. Now, the former president, not this present one, the former president, Hatami, who addressed the conference and the minister of the environment, um, have said, even apart from terrorism, Hatami said in an address to the Persian Gulf nations, he said, even apart from terrorism, our greatest threat is the environment. It's like what David uh, King said in England, that climate change and environmental issues will be the greatest threat um, for humans. Now, in Indonesia as well, as I mentioned um, last summer, there was a remarkable gathering at in Jakarta, the ancient capital city of Indonesia. Um, this is the largest Muslim country in the world. Uh, millions and millions of people are influenced by Muslim praxis there. And this conference, interdisciplinary as it was, bringing scientists, environmentalists, NGO people, government people, lawyers, um, and people who studied Islam, 
an explosion of energy around this issue. And again, there's some remarkable Islamic leaders doing tree planting. Uh, we went way out in the countryside outside of, of Jakarta, um, doing this with extraordinary verve and humor and um, wit and bringing in the local people and bringing in the politicians and so on and defying every kind of um, adverse possibility of failure. And what, is, um, what they want to do in Indonesia is bring together the ulamas and the National Ulama Association, which has worked on population control in the past and has made proclamations, fatwas, to say uh, population is a huge issue, which it is, and what they want to do is have the same kind of effect with, in, with regard to environmental issues. And Irma Witteler, whose husband is now president, uh, of, uh, minister of the environment in Indonesia, is working to make that happen, and as we speak, has convened a whole group of environmental leaders and religious leaders to begin that process, which will take time. Um, now, let me just, um, I'll, I'll touch very lightly, I've said something about India and about China, and I'm going to end with a story of two students. But I would just like to suggest that in India, the cleanup efforts of the Ganges, of the Yamuna River, the forest restoration work, so there's a temple in the south that gives um, as, as an offering to its participants saplings. And so reforestation is happening out of the temple. There are absolutely amazing projects um, throughout India. China, there are also very interesting things happening against great, great odds, needless to say. Um, but I would like to just mention one interesting um, event that took place about two years ago, and that was the, minister, the deputy minister for the environment, Pan Yue, made a statement, uh, 20 pages single space as we had it translated, to say that against this tremendous degradation that is going on in China that we all are aware of, and that they are now facing what I was keeping a record of was 10,000 protests a year about environmental issues. The latest reports are at 67,000 protests a year about land uh, reclamation, about water use. The Yellow River doesn't even reach the, um, the sea on certain uh, years. The Yangtze damming project has created the upheaval for a million plus people. So the, the problems that China is facing is on a scale we can almost not imagine. But Pan Yue said what we need to do in China is to create an environmental ethics based on our own cultural traditions, on Confucianism, on Taoism, and on Buddhism. And they are now translating the Harvard volumes into Chinese um, to do this. They're also doing that in Taiwan. And our hope is to do a conference there in the future um, that would bring to bear these traditional values. Now, you can see this is a vibrant, exciting, emerging, exploding field. Um, way beyond what we, anyone could really imagine. But I want to leave us with this challenge, and it comes from two students uh, at Bucknell, and I think it speaks to what we feel in our hearts as well. Um, because, as I said, I do think this hand to the next generation, 
this sense of hope and empowerment and participation that a different world is possible is what we need to generate above all. And these two students' stories illustrate this particular challenge. One student, when we were talking in a class about species extinction, and I should back up with a story that I had in my notes here and forgot to tell. So if you'll indulge me with this story, because it's arresting, and it involved Wangari too. Because when we finished these Harvard conferences, we said we've got to be in conversation with scientists, economists, you know, World Bank people, and educators, and so on. And so we had a conference at Harvard to bring this together. And then we did one at the United Nations, and uh, we did one also at the Natural History Museum. And what happened at the Natural History Museum was when we went to talk to Mike Novacek, the curator there, and said, you know, religions might have something to say here. And we were just very tentative because in that, these halls of science, you don't want to bring too much religion in and it's kind of, you know, scary. And Mike Novacek said, within five minutes of being in his office, you don't have to tell me. We know the importance of this issue of ethics and values and religion. Um, and he said, we were recently looking for an ornithologist, uh, for a curator in the museum staff, and six of the finalists, four of them had had their birds go extinct while they were studying them. And this was such a wake-up call to the museum staff. Are we studying species into extinction? Are we going to be ones who will witness this um, extinction? And the Hall of Biodiversity was created and, and so on. And on that floor of the Hall of Biodiversity, there is a plaque which says, we are in the midst of a sixth extinction period. And humans are the cause, but we can stem the tide of destruction. And it shows the cases of restoration and, and forest management and so on, along with the loss. And it gives us this alternative route. And this alternative route is what I'm suggesting these two students hold up to us as well. Because when I brought that story into the class um, at Bucknell, and we were talking about species extinction, and if you are 18 and 19 years old, even if you are ancient of days, this is hard news to take in. And this one student said, why should I care if 10,000, 20,000 species a year go extinct, which is what E.O. Wilson estimates. Why should I care? I think this is a hugely ethical question. And the other students in the class immediately leapt the scientists and the biologists and so on, ecosystems, web of life, and so on and so forth. This student persisted. And I was glad he felt open enough to uh, make his point clear. But he said, I'm going to New York. I'm going to work in Wall Street. Why should I care? This left me sleepless, I can assure you, because I think it's a question we have not yet fully answered. And when I asked him several weeks later, any change? No. He had made up his mind. I think there's a sense in this student of denial of interrelationship, of denial of the embeddedness in life, in species, in all species. The other student 
was a student of my husband's, and he was reading some of Thomas Berry's work, which were giving these macro-scale problems. Climate change and species extinction, I think, are the two great macro-scale problems. And thanks to people like Gus and others, the climate change is becoming more visible to people. But species extinction is still a little bit more invisible. And this student was so overwhelmed by what he was reading. He went into his room and he closed the door and literally couldn't come out for the weekend. And on Monday, he struggled into John's office. It was a a special reading class that he was doing with John. And he said, I just am overwhelmed. I am paralyzed. I am in despair. I am in despair. And that student eventually found his way back But I think we all hold parts of these students in our hearts, in our minds, in our work. To what extent do we deny or live in oblivion to these immensely interconnected, interrelated problems we are facing as a planet, as a species? And to what extent does despair lurk in our dreams, daydreams or night dreams, to what extent can we generate the hope and the possibility that those three points I mentioned at the beginning, that the inequities we are facing with humans, that the growth and economic development will not undermine ecosystems, and finally, that the religious communities can reimagine their role as caretakers for future generations in creating this multiform planetary civilization for a sustainable future. Thank you very much. Mary Evelyn Tucker is research scholar and senior lecturer in religion and the environment at Yale Divinity School. This was recorded on April 20, 2006. For more information, log on to www.yale.edu/divinity.